As you know, farmers in our area have recently planted their crops. All you have to do is look out the window and see. They plant, and then for the next few months, they work while waiting for the harvest. They fertilize the ground. They use insecticides. They check the market results and other such things. It's hard work for the farmers. And they look forward to the harvest in the fall, and hopefully at least some of them will not only have good crops, but will celebrate Thanksgiving. First Thanksgiving had to do with a harvest festival. In at least three places in the Bible, God uses that as a picture of himself. God is the great farmer. The world is his field, and humans are the crops. And one day, according to the word of God, there'll be a great harvest. When? At the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at these three places in the Bible this morning under the subject, The Great Harvest. Open with me in your copy of God's Holy Word to Revelation chapter 14. And then we will look at two places in the Gospel of Matthew. Revelation 14, John getting a vision of the future. Verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. The Son of Man is Jesus. He was predicted by this title back in Daniel chapter 7. And 80 times in the Gospels, he is called the Son of Man. All of those except one is Jesus referring to himself. The Son of Man means he is the Messiah, God's special Savior that is a human. But the Bible also says Jesus is Son of God. Son of Man via Mary, Son of God, eternally God, and also in the virgin birth. He's the only one qualified to be the Savior and the Messiah and the one that brings in God's harvest. It says here that he's seen on a cloud. Now, that's not just another rain cloud. The Bible talks about Jesus coming in the clouds at the second coming, Daniel 7 Matthew 24, Acts 1, Revelation 1.13. It's a special cloud that the Bible refers to as the Shekinah glory cloud. It was that special cloud that appeared on a few occasions in the Old Testament, such as when God ordained the construction of the tabernacle for worship and the sacrifice, and if God was pleased with that, He would, as it were, come down in this bright white cloud that was glowing with the glory of God. Same thing happened when the temple was later built. It was not a portable uh, tabernacle. It was a permanent building. And when they dedicated it with sacrifices, again, the cloud of God's glory came down. And in both of these occasions, the glory was such that even the priests ordained by God Couldn't take it any longer. It overwhelmed them and they had to leave like we've seen the glory of God. We can't even talk about it. 
This is the glory cloud that Jesus, as it were, rules over the universe over in the glory cloud. And at the second coming, the Bible says he comes with this special cloud, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The verse says that he comes having on his head a golden crown. Now, there are two words in the original Greek. New Testament was written in Greek. Two words translate as crown. One of them is diadema. We get the word diadem. That's the royal crown that a king wears. But this word here is the other word, stephanos, from which we get the English name Steve or Stephen. We have three Steves in our church here. The stephanos is the victor's crown, not the royal crown. Now, Jesus has both. But John's making a point. He sees Jesus coming back as the victorious king. You see, in those days, uh, they were the Olympics, and they would give not gold or silver or bronze medals. They would give a little wreath made out of olive leaves and place it upon the victor's head. And they will race and train and deny themselves in order to get that crown. Well, Jesus wears God's special victor's crown. When did he receive it? Well, we saw that a few weeks ago at Easter when he rose from the dead victoriously and returns to heaven. He is crowned, and the book of Revelation says we give our crowns to him, crown him Lord of all. So he comes back as the victorious king. also says that in his hand is a sharp sickle. could be translated a scythe. A sickle is a an instrument farmers used to use, and in some places in the world they still use, kind of shaped like a question mark, held in one hand, very sharp to cut down the plants for the harvest. Or if it's very large, it would be a scythe. Some of us remember that very evil symbol of the old Soviet Union, the hammer and sickle. What they were saying is, we are the workers' government. We, on behalf of the people, The farmers and the carpenters. No, it was a dictatorship. But it was the idea of a sickle or a scythe. Now, a scythe is much longer. It'd be like the length of a broomstick or even longer. It'd have a very long curved blade on it with a little handle. And that farmer would do like this and cut down many things going through the crops at the harvest. They didn't have combine harvesters back then. It was all done by... Hand. Well, here it says that at the second coming, Jesus comes with a sickle or a scythe. You've probably seen pictures or maybe heard the analogy that Satan is the grim reaper with the scythe cutting people down. Well, God does use the devil to take people's lives, but God also restrains them and God sometimes uses angels. But behind it all, it's God. That is the great reaper. He has the power of life and death. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, I kill and I make alive. He has all life and death in his hands. In fact, to change the analogy back in Revelation 1, Jesus said, I have the keys of life and death and of Hades. He is the ultimate great reaper in God's harvest. Verse 15, and another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the, cro- on the cloud. Now this is a preview of the future harvest, just like farmers wait and work for just that right day. You know, if you know anything about farmers, 
they know that when the harvest comes, it should be done on just the right day, even just the right hour. Don't put it off. Don't do it too soon. And so sometimes you come out here in the middle of the night and they'll be out there with their tractors and their harvesters with the bright lights saying, we have to do it today. If we wait a week, the crops will begin to wilt and to fade. In other words, the right time for the harvest. God has set the right time for his harvest. To the very year, month, week, day, hour, minute, and second, and he alone knows when it is. Yes, I know there are so-called prophets that today think that they can set the date. No, God himself knows the day. Even the angels don't know the day. But on that great day, God will summon the, uh, the angels and say, the harvest has come, you get out your sickles and scythes as well. Now, since God alone knows when that will be, we need to be ready at any time. Jesus said that in Matthew 24. He says that he will come at an hour we do not expect, just like a thief comes in the middle of the night when you don't expect him. Are you ready for the great harvest? What if it came today, next Tuesday, in the afternoon when you're at work, maybe in the morning when you're with your children playing somewhere, it could come at any time. The great reaper for the great harvest. It'll happen in our lives individually, and one day the whole world will be harvested. Look at verse 16. And it says, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Jesus reaps. Not as the farm hand, but he has farm hands working with him. He comes, as it were, with the great scythe, and the angels come with their handheld sickles. You see, Jesus isn't the farm hand, he's the owner of the field, he is the great farmer. But he uses angels. Look at the next couple of verses. It says, He who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel comes in from the altar in the temple who had the power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The time for the harvest has come, and he uses the angels as the farmhands, as it were, Angels are God's servants. They always obey him, unlike humans that don't always obey God. We usually don't. But the Bible says angels, it's their great privilege to obey him. They're helpers. They run on missions on God's behalf. They protect people or they're God's agents of death. And at the great harvest, he will sing forth, send forth his reapers into the harvest. But ultimately, it's Jesus that does it. The Bible says when Christ returns, he will return with not just thousands of angels, but with millions and millions and millions of angels. You'll look up in the sky at the second coming, and here comes Jesus, the focal point of not only history, but everything else. But he will be surrounded by saints and by angels filling the sky. And to use this picture, every single angel will have a sickle in his hand. Because he comes, they don't come down as it were, the entourage to celebrate, but they come, as it were, on a death mission to bring in the harvest of humanity. 
And here it says what the harvest is. As you know, there are various crops. There's uh, soybean, wheat, corn. But here it uses the picture of grapes. And now they're ready for the harvest. The grapes are fully ripe, it says here. And what happens? They come down and they pick the grapes and they, they, they harvest them with their sickles. Grapes can be used for eating or for making wine or grape juice. Interesting, it says that the angels, but as I keep saying, God even uses the devil. Exodus chapter 12, you know this story, the very first Passover, the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And God had said to Pharaoh, let my people go or else, sent them plague after plague. And finally, God delivers them. But on one of those last plagues, God said, kill a lamb, put its blood on the doorpost. And if you do that, the death angel will not strike the firstborn of your family. But it did for the Egyptians. They had no lamb, had no blood. The death angel. Who's that? Well, Hebrews 2 tells who it is. Also later in the book of Revelation, he's Apollyon. He's, he's the death angel. And God uses even Satan to carry out his purposes. See, we see this also in 1 Peter where it says, Be on your guard. Satan, like a roaring lion, is prowling around whom he may devour. Maybe you've seen a lion in a zoo or a circus or in a documentary, and they're very powerful king of the beast. And it says that Satan is prowling around. Who is he going to sink his teeth into? And he can only go so far because God's got him on a leash. If you're lost, the devil wants to sink his teeth into you and drag you into hell. But thank God that he's still on God's leash. But don't presume upon time or God's grace because God will hold him back, but at the right time, that snarling lion was saying, let me at him, let me at him, and God will say, you want him? Take him. And he'll let go of the leash. God uses even Satan the lion to bring in the harvest. This is a serious question. So it says here that the picture is of a farmer with a sickle with his Ranch hands bringing in the clusters of the vine of the earth for the grapes are fully ripe. For what purposes? Well, we see the next verse. So the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. Blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles, 1,600 furlongs. Now this is how they used to make grape juice and wine those days. They'd, they'd gather in the grapes and then they'd have workers put them in baskets and carry them on the shoulders to the wine press. It'd be this large circular area and they'd drop the, the grapes in there. Maybe you've seen this picture in pictures, movies, TV shows. And then there'll be other workers there that will you know, roll up their pant legs, take their sandals off, and they'll go trampling over the grapes. So crush them, and the juice comes out, as it were, and then it goes down a little funnel, and then it's gathered up in these huge barrels, and then if, it, it's, if it's to be made wine, it'll have to ferment for a period of time. That's how they made wine. In fact, some parts of the world, that's still how they make it. This portion of the Bible says this is part of God's harvest, he harvests the grapes, and every human being, as it were, is a grape thrown into the wine press. If they are lost sinners, 
at the time of the second coming, they will not be blessed. They will be crushed in the wine press of God. Revelation 14.10, earlier we said, it's to make the wine of the wrath of God. Lamentations 1.15 says, the Lord trampled as in a wine press. And especially Isaiah 63, 2 and 3 says this, listen closely. Talking to God, the great farmer in the winepress, says, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? And the answer is, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from peoples, no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Joel 3.13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So though the angels may be used together with the devil to gather in the harvest, it's God Almighty himself that treads out the winepress. Earlier in the 20th century, there was a famous novel, I believe it won the Pulitzer Prize, called The Grapes of Wrath. That term is taken from the book of Revelation. God is, as it were, trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, as we sing in one of the great hymns, Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's God himself that tramples this out. He will crush all unrepentant sinners like a huge foot tramping down on the grapes that are helpless to resist. Imagine a two-ton elephant stamping his feet on little grapes, helpless to resist. And what happens when grapes are trampled? They break open, and the juice inside comes squirting out. And that's what will happen. The Bible is very earthy on this picture. It's like he tramples them down and their blood comes out like juice out of a crushed grape. God uses earthy pictures like this. Elsewhere he says, it's not so much a farmer but a butcher. You ever been to a butcher shop? Have you ever been to a slaughterhouse? I have. Some of our men here are ranchers. They certainly have. And you see the butchers and the men in the slaughterhouse covered in blood. I've been covered in blood when I slaughter a deer or or other animals that I've hunted. And that's the earthy picture God uses. Or a warrior returning from the battle with the blood of his enemies upon him. But here he uses the picture of a farmer in the wine press. For a second illustration, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Where again, God uses this picture of a farmer. Here, it's through the words of John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus. He would baptize him and say, he is the Lamb of God. Look at Matthew 3, verse 12. Actually, go back to verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Be he that is coming after me, that's the Messiah, is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, 
but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's predicting what Jesus will do. And what will he do? Well, it depends upon to whom he is doing it. It says that he will gather the wheat into his barn. If you're a Christian, you are a stalk of wheat. You were planted, you will be harvested, brought into the barn of heaven. And he baptizes you in the Holy Spirit when he saves you. You are united with him and the Holy Spirit is in you. But not everyone is, as it were, a stalk of wheat. Other ones are phony wheat. They are the chaff. They are the weeds. So here are the pictures of a farmer with a wheat crop, not grapes. And it says he has a fan or sometimes translate a pitchfork because what they would do then is they'd, they'd cut down the wheat. Then they'd have to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. Chaff would be like just useless dust you can't do anything with. So what they did was several ways. One, they would use a pitchfork and they'd grab a bunch and they'd throw it in the air and the wind would blow the chaff away. The Bible says that the lost sinners are like, like chaff that the wind of the Holy Spirit will just blow away. It's useless. And he keeps doing this and he separates the wheat and the, wheat and the chaff. Or instead of a pitchfork, they'll just grab a handful, throw it in the air and fan it and that that will also separate. Whether it's a pitchfork or a fan, it's the same idea. It's God that does it just like God with the great scythe. Christ will baptize his believers in the Holy Spirit and bring them to the barn of heaven. But what does it say the farmer does with the chaff? Look at the text. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire because the farmers then would have a barn. But then what does he do with the chaff? The ranch hands will gather it all up, put it in a big stack, and they'll ignite it, and it'll go up in flames. That's what it means when it says in the previous verse, he will baptize with fire. The choice is, will we be baptized in the Holy Spirit, or will we be baptized in the fires of the lake of fire? The book of Revelation describes as hell. There's no third group. Which group are you in? The wheat? Or the chaff? What will happen to you at the great harvest? Will you be ushered into God's barn of eternal glory and love? Or into the fire of hell? The third place the Bible uses this picture is just a few pages over in Matthew 13. Jesus telling a parable talking about the second coming and the great harvest. Matthew 13, 24 to 30. He says that in that field, there's not only the wheat, but the tares, sometimes translated as darnel or weeds. Verse 30, it's, it's like phony wheat. It's not true thing. It's like fool's gold as opposed to true gold. And no farmer wants that. It doesn't want weeds in his field. That's why they use certain fertilizers and disinfectants today to get those weeds out. And it says that at the right time, here comes the sower. Verse 37, the son of man. There's the phrase again. Jesus sowed the good wheat and he will also harvest it. Verse 38, the field is the world. Verse 38, the good seed and the crop are the Christians who are called the sons of the kingdom. Verse 38 says the tares, the phony wheat, are, quote, the sons of the wicked one. That's Satan. 
Lost, unrepentant sinners. Now, everybody is, as it were, born phony wheat, but God transforms some of them into true wheat, ready for the harvest. Verse 39 says, the enemy is Satan. He's God's worst enemy. He is an inveterate, hostile enemy of God Almighty. And he spoils God's harvest, as it were, because, as I said, he wants to take people to hell, not to heaven. You'd say, why should he bother? You'd say it's none of his business who goes to heaven or to hell. Ah, but as misery loves company, the devil wants to take people to hell. And so he goes throughout the world, as it were, the whole field that God has planted, and he now plants these tares, the phony wheat, people that think they're Christians. They've been baptized. They go to church. They say, I've even read my, read my Bible when I feel like it. I maybe go to church at Christmas if I'm not at a party. And they'll say, yes, I'm a Christian. But they are the phony wheat. They're the tares. God knows who they are, and so does the devil. But a lot of people don't know they are the phony wheat. So Satan, as it were, mixes his phony wheat together with God's true wheat, waiting for the final harvest. Verse 39, the harvest will occur at the end of the age. That's the culmination of all human history. Everything in history has been pointing to this great culmination. One great scholar called it Day X. And God has marked the calendar. And nothing in heaven or on earth or in hell can prevent it. The great harvest at the second coming of Jesus. Verse 39, he will send his reapers into the field, as we've said, the angels. And then verses 40 to 42, the angels will, care, will gather the tares, the phony wheat, that has been separated from the true wheat. And what do they do? Look again. They cast them into the fire. In fact, it says the furnace of fire. Bible describes hellfire in a variety of ways. And one of them is a furnace. You have, maybe have a furnace in your house to warm your house in the wintertime. And you stoke it. You either put wood in there or in some old places coal or probably a gas one. But it's to produce the fire to keep you warm. God has a furnace called hell. And it says that when people go there, look at the text again. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, wailing. What does it mean, gnashing of teeth? If you ever been in such pain, all you can do is just grit your teeth. It hurts so much. That's how Jesus repeatedly describes sinners in hell. Weeping, wailing, crying out in pain and gritting their teeth. It's described as a place of torment and anguish in fire. Now the illustrations we've looked at give two analogies for the same thing. Revelation 14, the winepress of God's wrath, and in Matthew 3 and 13, the fire of God's wrath. They're both symbols of the same thing, the wrath of God, a theme we've seen over and over and over again, I believe, in every chapter in the book of Revelation. What about Christians, though? Look at verse 43. The sons of the kingdom will shine forth like the sun. Isn't that wonderful? What does that mean? Revelation 1, John got a vision of Jesus and said he was like the sun shining in his strength. Bible says we too will be aglow with the reflected glory of God. There's no darkness in heaven. We will be glorified and will shine forth like the sun, like the angels, like the one that appeared on Easter Sunday 
Well, like Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, we've got a glorious future. We will be glorified and we will shine, as it were, like stars in God's eternal heaven. Verse 49, at the end of history, the angels separate mankind. God uses them to do that. Again, the Bible repeatedly says there are only two types of people in the world, the saved and the lost, Christians and non-Christians. Matthew 25 says that they will appear at the last judgment and Jesus will separate them like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. At the great harvest and at the great judgment day, in which group will you be? Don't deceive yourself. Make absolutely sure now. You see, there's no second chance after death, and there's only two groups. You can't be in both, and you can't be in a third or a fourth group. Best to find out now and make extra sure. You see, when John the Baptist used this illustration and he saw the wicked Pharisees that were hypocrites, he says, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And he pled with people, make sure you're ready to meet God. And on God's behalf, I say with John the Baptist, flee the wrath to come. How? By running as fast as you can to the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, fall at his feet and believe in Jesus. That's the only way to avoid the judgment to come. Now this is the final and worldwide harvest of all mankind at the second coming. It's inevitable. But the Bible says that in addition to that great harvest of mankind at large, intermittently, every day, every hour throughout history, there is also a personal harvest of individuals that do not live to the great harvest. People that will not be alive then, they've already died, they've already been cut down and harvested. You see, throughout history, God is planting people in his field. Conceived in their mother's womb, they're born. Like wheat, they grow up, they go through various expenses, uh, experiences, And they're either cut down young in life, in the prime of life, or in old age, but those are the personal harvests. As they go through the seasons of life, gradually they begin to realize, I too will be cut down. Your harvest, your death, for some people, just a very short lifetime. Maybe teenagers. But at whatever time of life they're cut down, They're still sinners, just like in the great harvest at the end of time. Some people live a very long life, very long. Did you read that recently about the oldest lady in the world, 119? She had lived through, think about it, World War I, World War II, Korea, all these other things, 119 years old. But she too died. She had her own personal harvest. One day, the Lord Jesus Christ, the owner of the field, the great farmer, will harvest everybody, me, you, your family, either individually or collectively at the end of history. Will you go into the wine press of God's wrath? Will you go into the furnace of fire? Or will you be reaped 
to go into eternal heaven with Jesus. Now, why does the Bible use such graphic language? It's not a ruse. You know what a ruse is. It's where someone threatens you with something that they don't intend to carry out, but it's to scare you and to do it. And there are people that say, yeah, the Bible has all these scare tactics, but of course God is a God of love. He's never going to do this. You've just called God a liar and a deceiver. God uses graphic words to get our attention. If it was just powdered up and looked nice, people would say, oh, I've got nothing to worry about. That's why Jesus, John the Baptist, Paul, John, Moses, the prophets use such Uh, such graphic language and pictures like a wine press and grapes being trampled and their blood squirting out or a farmer cutting them down and throwing them into the fire. He uses such language, hear me folks, to get our attention so that we would repent. That's why the book of Revelation over and over and over again is predicting the day of doom at the second coming. It'll be a day of glory and happiness for Christians, but on that day there'll be vastly more non-Christians than Christians. I urge you, in Jesus' name, to think seriously about this. In fact, let me close with this exhortation. At the end of this day, every one of us here will go to bed. You'll put on your pajamas, you'll climb into bed. If you're married, you'll kiss your spouse goodnight. Then you'll turn off the light, maybe set the alarm clock. Tonight, right before you go to sleep, you have your head on your pillow. Think about this message. And I encourage you to pray a little prayer that I learned as a child, and maybe some of you have learned. The prayer is this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Think about that. When I was a little boy, I was scared when I prayed that prayer. But it got my attention. Has God got your attention? He says these things in such strong language because he loves you. If he didn't love you, he'd just let the judgment come. He warns you. The Bible even says he pleads with you. In 2 Corinthians, he uses a word that means literally he begs you. And we that are Christians also would get on our knees and beg you. We plead with you. Listen to God's warning while you still have time before it's too late. Let us pray. Father, you do indeed love us enough to warn us of the great harvest and to warn us of our personal harvest. The Lord Jesus is the farmer, the owner. He is the great reaper. Father, thank you that Jesus is also the Savior that died on the cross, as it were, so that we do not have to be judged and go to hell. He took it for us. Thank you for him. And bless us now as we remember him at the Lord's table. 
In Jesus' name, amen.